morning, everyone. Good evening, and welcome to week number seven of 12 of our survey of the Sermon on the Mount. I, um, I have every week found myself having to um, remind myself that this is not a verse-by-verse exposition, uh, that I cannot squeeze every ounce of goodness out of each word and verse. We are compelled uh, by, by dint of this organization to, uh, to finish a, a, a segment in 12 weeks. And it is one of the more annoying things that I have to do every week. Um, but it's a good goal. And so we will have at the end of these 12 weeks, well, we will have considered, um, uh, for lack of a better term, you know, 12 hours worth of the, uh, the most famous sermon in the whole Bible. And so we come tonight to chapter 6 and verses 25 through 34. And so if you will, join me there, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. And when you find your place, uh, join me in standing in honor of the reading of God's word. Here on the heels of compelling his listeners to think eternally, not temporally. Think about the long run, not the short run. Think about the eternal treasury, the eternal reward, not the uh, earthly treasury where moth and rust can destroy. Think eternally. On the heels of that, he uses this conjunction, therefore, in verse 25. And so while we are separated by a calendar week from that phrase, we should not allow it to be too far from our minds. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, verse 27, be, by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Father, as we come to this passage on worry and fear and anxiety, uh, we pray that you would uh, meet needs where they are, uh, that you would uh, open and clarify minds to help us think rightly about these things. And we pray that you would uh, do miraculous work in the hearts of those, uh, especially who wrestle and struggle with worry and fear and anxiety. These words come to us from the mouth of our Savior, and so they are both full of wisdom and truth, but also full of life and the the waters that keep us alive and the bread that nourishes us and makes us strong. May we receive these words accordingly tonight. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, in case we are tempted to forget, the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to the followers of Jesus. It is not evangelistic in any way. In fact, at one point in this brief section, Jesus literally turns to his followers and says, the heathens do this, but not you. Now that's clear in the text and therefore an implication of the type of sermon that this is. It's not outreach-oriented. It is directed to the followers, to the committed, compelling them to walk and live in a particular way so as to be accurate ambassadors of the heavenly kingdom while on earth. That's critical. It's critical that we remember that. As we come this morning, or excuse me, this evening to this passage, the key phrase is, of course, do not be anxious. It comes up three specific times, do not be, do not be. A few other times, the question is, the, the, the word is used in the form of a question. Uh, which of you, by being anxious, can add an hour to his life? But three, fra- three times, the phrase is used directly, don't be anxious. It reads in the original language as it reads in English, as a direct instruction, later echoed by Paul in his letter to the Philippians in that famous and often quoted passage, do not be anxious about anything, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. If Jesus commands it, and the apostle echoes it by way of prose discourse instruction, the reader under the lordship of Christ has a duty to obey it. To worry is to sin. To live in a state of prayerless anxiety is to sin. To be preoccupied with fears of the future is the disobedience of sin. Worry and anxiety are direct 
sinful disobedience to the commands of our Savior. If Jesus commands it and we ignore it, that's called willful rebellion, habitual sin, faithless Christianity. And yet, <laughs> yet, Jesus doesn't speak to his disciples with that type of terminology. It's true, but that's not how he comes to them. That's not how he conveys the instruction. Instead of taking a hard-line approach that says, I am your Lord, obey, or be in rebellion, Jesus in perfect compassion, recognizing the frailty of fallen man, appeals to the intellect. He appeals to the intellect. Giving three reasons his followers are not to worry. Not three times the same hard-line instruction, but three reasons his followers are not to worry. And then he holds them up in contrast to those who are not in covenant relationship with God. The three reasons are, consider your father, consider your faith, and consider your future. Three times, Jesus says, do not be anxious, and each time he gives a reasoned, though faith-dependent argument to correspond. So let's consider them in order. Number one, Jesus says, consider your father. Let's read again verses 25 through the first part of verse 30. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? See how he's appealing to the intellect? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, with all of his wealth and all of his glory, he was not as beautifully arrayed as one of the flowers of the field. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, the idea is he clothes the grass with the flowers, which is today alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. See how he asks the questions? See how he appeals to the intellect? Aren't you more valuable to the God of all creation than grass? Or better yet, perhaps you are worried about this because you do not understand that you are more valuable to your Father in heaven than the grass or the birds. See, he's appealing to their intellect, looking to redefine some terms looking to perhaps redefine the value that they place on themselves. 
three examples of the Father's care, food, health, and clothing. First, food, he says, consider the birds. The birds eat, God feeds them. Why are you worried about food? Now, it's likely that Jesus could point to a flock of birds flying through the air as he said these words. You could almost imagine it. There he is in a moment saying, therefore, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or, or what you'll drink. And he pauses for a moment, you know, and, and you know, like a, like a flock of birds goes flying overhead. And he says like this, consider the birds. Now, it's reasonable that this could have happened because Galilee is called by one author the crossroads of bird migration. The Tel Aviv airport has special rules for air travel around the studied patterns of bird migration through the area. Uh, At one point, perhaps still today, more Israeli fighter jets were downed by birds than downed by enemy aircraft. All the birds of Europe that migrate south into Africa do so by passing over Israel. You know, you think, well, why is that? Well, if you just look at the the map, what you see is you see, you know, you know, Turkey and and you know, Western Europe, and then you have, you know, the east and you have Syria and you have Russia and then on on into the east into Iran and Iraq. All these all these regions they're, they're basically surrounded, or, or to the south of these regions, like a funnel, is the nation of Israel. To the right, or to the east, is desert. So if you're a bird flying south for the winter towards the African continent, you're not going to fly over the desert. There's no trees, there's no nourishment, there's no nothing. But you're also not going to fly over the open sea. There's heavy winds, there's nowhere to land, nowhere to rest, there's no food. So what are you going to do? You're going to travel right over Israel and then south into the African continent. And so Galilee, the place where Jesus did the the bulk of his ministry, is referred to as the crossroads of bird migration. It's pretty remarkable. Jesus might have done exactly that as he was teaching and some birds fly overhead. He might have sent up a, a little prayer, thanking the Father for the timely illustration. Consider those birds. Look at them go. They look free, don't they? <laughs> they don't. Did you see the expression on that one bird's face? He was smiling. He wasn't worried. He wasn't anxious. He wasn't weighed down. No, what what was he saying? He was saying God feeds them. God did not create the birds only to abandon them. He gave them instincts to avoid the desert, avoid the open sea, fly south for the winter. It's going to get cold. He gave them mines, at least big enough in their little bird brains to build nests and know where to find food. Here we are, the humans, and we're scattering seed out in the field, and they're coming by saying, thank you very much, right? On their way south, thanks for the free lunch, dummy. <laughs> you thought it was going to grow? That's my dinner, right? He gave them a mind enough to even, even recognize the sound of the seed hitting the ground from up there. They can hear it, 
and they swoop down when they hear the sound of the seed, the, the seed hitting the ground. They scoop in for a meal. That's all a gift from God, and this is how God feeds them. And he says, how much more valuable to him are you, the image bearers of God? See, this is the whole reason why the regulation comes that you should make no graven image. No, no image of God is to be made. It's twofold. Number one, in part because you are the image of God. Humankind is the image of God. God made an image, a representative or a representation of himself on the earth. Don't make a new one. Don't worship an image, worship the creator. Number two, Jesus is the perfect image of God. And so anything apart from that you know, recognition is, is a violation. It's, an, it's, an, it's, a, it's a, an intrusion. It takes away from the specialness of humankind and the purpose of God putting his image onto us and putting us on the earth. How much more valuable are you than birds, image bearers of God? How much more valuable are you than birds, salt of the earth? The followers of Jesus who are to stymie the decay of sin on the earth through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit? Don't you think God's purpose and plan for you accomplishing that mission is more important than birds? You're the living, breathing ambassadors of an eternal kingdom. Paul says we are citizens of heaven. We're aliens in this world, citizens of heaven. We're headed there. Ecclesiastes says this life is but a vapor. The eternal state, that's what matters. That's what goes on. This is here today and gone tomorrow. You're here for just a short time as ambassadors of an eternal kingdom from another place. Don't you think you matter more to the God who commissioned you to be here than these stinking birds that poop on everything? You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's attempting to recalibrate the mind. He doesn't just say, stop doing something. He says, stop thinking this way. And he, and he comes with eternal wisdom, perfect wisdom, and he appeals to our intellect to say, start thinking a new way. And we can trust him. There are gurus. They come up in your, you know, in your social media feeds with the videos you know, these guys, they get up, they say, uh, I get up every morning at 4 a.m., I listen to a, a book on tape at double speed, and then for 20 minutes I spend time with my wife in, in, in meditative mindfulness, and we, we can join, you know, our minds together, and then we're on the treadmill for 20 minutes, and then it's an hour with the weights, and then we spend an hour in meditation, and it's like, dude, what, what are you talking, and then... 8 to 9 a.m., it's an hour with our children where we're doing life lessons and we're having breakfast. And then by 9, by 9 a.m., the day hasn't even started. 
and yet I've done all the important things. And if you just join my 18-step program for $365 a month, you know, right? Then you too can be imbued with this wisdom to know how to be and how to, how to crush life like me, right? That's not that far from a video that I watched this week. I wasn't looking for this. I'm watching like F1, like Formula One racing, you know, and all of a sudden this guy's on like, crush the world. And I'm like, dude, get out of my space, you know. But these guys are a dime a dozen. It's everything. It's physical fitness. It's mindfulness. It's meditation. And look, some of these things are actually really good Christian practices. Meditation, I will meditate on the word. Yeah. But no, what these guys are prescribing is some kind of new idea. And they look like they got it all, you know, figured out. Well, who do I listen to? This guy sounds pretty brilliant. I've certainly never done 20 minutes of mindfulness with my wife. How do you even do that? Well, I guess I better sign up for the free seven-day trial, you know? What's that guy trying to do? That guy's trying to get you to think differently. Well, what's Jesus doing? He's coming from the eternal wisdom of the Father, from eternity past. He's coming from the, the, the eons before the world was created, and he says, let me tell you how to think differently. I'll tell you what, there's one that I want to go with and another that I want to ignore. Consider your father. Consider your father when you worry about things like food or your health, which of you can add a day to his life by being anxious about it. None. In fact, worry and anxiety are, are diagnosed life shorteners. It speeds up the general aging process. Worry can increase your risk of heart disease and strokes. Anxiety can breed insomnia, lead to digestive issues. One doctor says it affects worry and anxiety can affect the circulation, the heart, the glands, the entire central nervous system. Quote, never will you worry yourself into a longer life, end quote. Now, as I was reading about those, those side effects of worry, some of your blood pressure was going up because you were worrying about worrying about these things and causing these side effects. <laughs> this is not helping, preacher. No, the point is, Jesus is holding out his hand saying, come on, I got a better way. I got a wise way. I got a good way. Not only can you not add to your life by worrying about it, you can negatively impact it today and tomorrow, shortening it and making what time you have left of a lesser quality. Food, health, clothing. Here, again, Jesus is arguing, it's a, there's a Latin phrase, I forget what it is now, but it's, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Some of our homeschool students might know this Latin phrase because they're smart arguing from the lesser to the greater. And Jesus says, look at the flowers, now consider you, mankind. Look at the birds, consider you, mankind. Look at the grass, consider you. From the lesser 
to the greater. Jesus continues this into verse 28. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. God clothes the grass with flowers. An interesting idea that Jesus conveys. We don't think about it like this. We see the flowers, perhaps, the wildflowers specifically, and we go, aren't those pretty flowers? What we then often fail to recognize is that the flowers are dressing up the field, like doing the field's hair. That's how Jesus presents this. God is clothing the grass with flowers. The same grass that serves no purpose except to be cut down and bound up into tight bundles and used as cheap firewood. It's the only reason why God put the grass on the earth to begin with is so that you can chop it down and burn it. And yet, just for fun, just for the pleasure of the eye, just to be creative, just to display his beauty, he goes, how about some flowers? Isn't that nice? He dresses up the weeds that are to be cut down and burned. He adorns firewood with beautiful little flowers. Aren't you more to him than grass? Do you see Jesus asking you to think differently? It's a strange thing, isn't it? To drive maybe up like Highway 16 here, where at various times of the year, there's wildflowers, purple or yellow or white. I'll tell you what, having little daughters, you know, when my girls were little especially, it's a, it's a very helpful way to notice the wildflowers on the road. But we don't plant them. The, the state highway agency doesn't cultivate them, but yet how captivating they are. And Jesus says, Solomon with all his wealth couldn't dress himself up in such beauty as God dresses up just these indiscriminate roadsides with flowers. We marvel at paintings that depict nature, but in all their beauty, the artwork always pales in comparison to the real thing, doesn't it? You think, wow, look at the picture of that sunset. And then you sit before a sunset and you go, okay, yeah. Even when we're in awe of some beautiful piece of artwork, what's so amazing about it? It's amazing when it's so close to the real thing. Well, what's the point? The real thing is beautiful. The real thing is superior to the imitation. Truly, Romans 20, Romans 1, verse 20, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Now, the hearers of Jesus' sermon in the first century couldn't have done this, but we can do this today. 
if you take a microscope and you put it on the, the softest, most luxurious piece of fabric, something like silk, and you, you uh, uh, zoom like way in down to that like fibrous level, and you take a snapshot of that zoomed-in image, and then you take a real flower petal, and you zoom in just as far. One looks very rigid, and the other majestic. Solomon, in all of his wealth, was not so finely arrayed as the grass of the field that's here today and gone tomorrow. Aren't you more to him than grass? Consider your father. What Jesus doesn't say is that it's wrong to plan. The birds fly, they gather, and they eat. They don't sit hungry on the branch or wait for God to carry them south in the winter. They use what God gave them, and we are called to do the same. Proverbs 6 in the King James, which is the best translation of this particular verse The father is compelling his son. He says, go to the ant, thou sluggard. That's why the King James is the best. Look at the ant. What do they do? They work, they save, they stack it up, they store it up for what? For a rainy day? So it's not wrong. It's not a sin to work. It's a sin to worry. So Jesus says, why worry? Consider your father. Work, don't worry. The second thing he asks us to consider is our faith. Oh, you of little faith, he says there at the end of verse 30. Oh, you of little faith. Sounds like an insult. It's not. Jesus said if you just had the faith of a, uh, the size of a grain of mustard seed, then you can move mountains. It's not an insult for Jesus to to call their faith little, but rather he's expressing to them that they have what they need to follow his instructions. You have a little faith, and that's enough. For if you exercise that faith by obeying my instructions, it will grow. And then you of little faith become you with much faith. But here in this section, verse thirty. The second half of verse 30 there into verse 33, Jesus sums up the, all the basic necessities of life. Look, look at them here. Oh, you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious saying, look, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? <laughs> or what shall we wear? That's, look, at the end of the day, that's all you really need. In fact, those are the basic necessities for life. If you have food, water, and clothing, you can survive. At some point, the elements can become such that you need shelter, but if you have food, water, and clothing, you can make shelter. You can go someplace warm. But especially in the first century, in Israel, food, water, and clothing were much more unreliable and harder to come by than today. For the most part, The audience of this sermon lived hand-to-mouth, meaning day-to-day. They worked for a day, got paid for a day, bought food for a day, rinse and repeat tomorrow. Most of these people were 
out listening to Jesus, A, because they had heard he was feeding people, and B, because they were not important people sitting in palaces with responsibilities and salaries and luxuries. They were desperate. And he had the words of life. But these are people who couldn't count on food, water, and clothing from one day to the next. In fact, this is how it was for most of the ancient world. Even if you look up to as, as recently as 150 years ago in America, most of life's activities revolved around what was simply required to maintain the food supply, basic safety, and basic clothing. This was the day. This was the work of the day. All right, we got that done. What do we do tomorrow? More stuff to survive. <laughs> And then when it gets cold and you can't work outside anymore, now what do you do? You go in the barn and you split shingles to repair the roof so you can survive. So much of life was about survival. And so when Jesus said, don't worry about food, water, and clothing, the words resonated in their ears much differently than ours. We take all those things for granted to one degree or another. This audience did not. Their daily survival depended upon a careful oversight of these basics. In the summer, the streams dried up. New clothing, even once per year, for the average first century Hebrew laborer was not guaranteed. Famines occurred regularly. It, it wasn't a question of, will there ever be another famine? The question is simply, when is the next famine going to strike the land? And it could be at any point. They're literally praying for the rains to come. But Jesus says, regardless of the fact that your daily life revolves around your mere survival, when you worry about these things, you demonstrate a lack of faith. And it's a lack of faith that is inconsistent with your position. That's his point. That's why he brings up the Gentiles. Verse 32, for the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. You, you could literally read that as the pagans worry over these matters. Or you could read it as unregenerate people do not have the safety net of their confidence in God's provision and care. It's all on them because they're all alone. No wonder they worry. It's all on their shoulders. But not you. Your heavenly father looks out for you. So it's not all on your shoulders. So when you worry as if you were in this camp, you violate your position. Those who are unredeemed, who have not the hope in the company of being in covenant relationship with God, well, it's no wonder they worship at the altar of success and money and financial security. It's all they have. 
but what a ridiculous violation for the Christian to step up to that same altar and pay homage. They should look at you and go, what are you doing here? I'm supposed to be here. I don't believe what you believe, but if you believe what you believe, you're, you're, you're not here. You're not paying homage. You're not worshiping. You're not sacrificing at the altar of success or financial security. You say you have a father in heaven who has a, a cattle on a thousand hills. What are you doing over here? And so the questions come like this and to me as I sat and meditated on this passage this week. What kind of Christian faith worries like those who have no faith? What kind of Christian witness is it when we are anxious and fearful? What kind of God and Father are we hoping to introduce our lost neighbors to? What kind of faith do I have? What kind of witness am I presenting? What kind of God am I hoping to introduce my lost neighbor to? You see? Hey, come to church, come meet my God, come meet my Savior. Can you count on him? Is he reliable? Are his promises certain? <laughs> and you're, you're over there, oh yes, oh yes, as you sacrifice at the altar of financial security right next to him. Well, if he's so reliable and his promises are so certain, then why are you over here with me? You see, what kind of God am I hoping to introduce him to? This is why Alistair Begg says, the church has historically been the most effective at reaching the community when the church is the least like the culture. Not the most like it, the least like it. Because otherwise, what are we offering to our neighbor? They have everything that we display matters to us. It's when we live and think and operate and exist from a holistic perspective so ridiculously different from them. It's, that's, that's salty. That doesn't taste like my bland food in the cabinet. That tastes different. And so as we worry over these things, as we allow anxiety to cripple our health and to cripple our activities, by that type of a faithless demonstration, the God we proclaim is either incapable, indifferent, or ignorant, or all of the above. That's what we're saying about him. He's incapable, so I'm worried about his provision. He's indifferent. He doesn't care. So I'm worried. Or he's ignorant. God doesn't know I exist. God doesn't know about my fears. Or perhaps all three of them. In any case, that's not a God who I want to meet or serve or trust. 
MacArthur says, this is not a trivial sin. It is one that strikes at the very character and promise of God. And yet, as much as it is sinful disobedience to be given over to worry, Jesus continues his appeal to his followers instead of crashing down on them with the hard truth, truth without grace, he continues to appeal to them. Come on, come on. And this is why the the scripture in Hebrews is so important to us, friends, where it says, we have a a faithful high priest who is able to empathize with our weaknesses because he draped himself in flesh and he lived that same human existence without great financial security. God in his wisdom chose to be born to a young girl not in the palace of a king, right? Into a poor family. They lived and worked in the, in the, the wrong side of the railroad tracks, right? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? They said. Just a bunch of bums up in Nazareth. See, he clothed himself in the same insecurities that we have in our flesh. And so he doesn't come to his followers and say, don't worry, like one who doesn't know, like one who has never missed a meal, like one who's never mourned, like one who's never been afraid or been cold or been hungry or been thirsty. He experienced all of that. And he says, come on, don't worry. It's an incredible kindness to think that the God of all creation draped himself in the the flesh and the weaknesses of his creation. He didn't have to do that. I mean, he did, doctrinally speaking, you know. But he didn't, because he's God. He could choose to rescue mankind however he sees fit. It is a hard thing to listen to advice from someone who you think cannot relate to your circumstances. Right? Easy for you to say, you were raised by two parents. Right? Easy for you to say, you weren't abused when you were a child. Easy for you to say, you've never slept on the streets, hungry, cold, afraid, and exhausted. And so it should come to us as an incredible comfort um, that Jesus did experience everything that we experience. There is no hardship or pain or trouble that your high priest, your mediator between where you are down here and where holy God is up there 
there is no circumstance that your mediator cannot relate to. And he does not come through with these words saying, stop worrying. He comes through with the same scars and the same grief and the same hungry flesh. He is not unable to sympathize with your weakness. He simply asks us to think differently. His body was limited, Jesus. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was weak at times. But his mind, his mind was uncorrupted by the sin that ensnares our minds. And so draped in a, 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 a weak body that's susceptible to harm, to cold, to hunger, the wisdom of his perfect mind comes through his mouth and he says, think this way. Consider your father who loves you. Aren't you more valuable than birds and grass? Consider your faith. You've been put here for a reason. What kind of God are you displaying when you worry and when you fear? What picture are you projecting in your anxiety? To a world who's asking you to introduce them to the God of all creation. Consider your purpose. And then he just says, consider your future. All right? Consider your father. Consider your faith. Three, consider your future. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What is tomorrow? Tomorrow is in the Lord's hands. Tomorrow may be your last day on earth, so what, is, what good is it to worry about it? Tomorrow may be the last day before Jesus returns, and yet you spent today worrying about what might happen tomorrow. What did you accomplish? Nothing. Jesus still came back, and what you were worried about never came to pass because the world ended, right? What good is worrying about tomorrow? Come on, think differently. Right? You see him. Come on. Think differently. The Christian knows that tomorrow is in the Lord's hands. That no, no, man, no matter, no man knows the day or the hour of his return. The Christian knows that eventually tomorrow will be the first day of eternity. And so when tempted to worry about tomorrow, consider your future and pray with the psalmist, my times are in your hands. This is where the sin and pitfall of worry really meets its climax. It's almost like Jesus was building to this. Some people are so adept at being anxious, they invent future things to worry about. It's as if Jesus says, you have what you need for today, so you're not worried, your belly is full, you're warm, but... You are so devoted to the idol of worry that you fabricate future hypothetical things to worry about. Come on, think differently. Your needs are met today, so you can't be anxious about today, but you can imagine potential things to be anxious about, and so you do. Not only does this create scenarios in your mind that you're powerless to stop because they haven't happened yet, but this obsession will also spoil today. No wonder Luther calls worry a ruinous vice. 
which commonly pushes its way in violently along with the gospel. A ruinous vice. You're worried for tomorrow. You're worried about what might be. You're worried about your child who is unregenerate. You're worried about the future of the economy. You're worried about things that are outside of your control. But it's this moment that gets wasted. Those things may or may not come to pass, and when they do, you'll deal with them, you'll walk through them, but in the meantime, this moment, what was it spent on? Not meditating on the wonders and the glories of God, not enjoying the company of your brothers and sisters in the Lord, or your children, or your grandchildren, no. That moment was kicked out, it was stomped out, it was poisoned by your worry over tomorrow. What a destructive force in the present moment. And Jesus simply says, that has no place in the life of a Christian. Not as a hard command, but almost like, I've got a better meal for you. And it doesn't taste so bitter. What then is the remedy for those who wrestle with fear and worry and anxiety, is it secular philosophy? Is that what Jesus said? Go to the philosopher. No. He said go to the Father. Right? What's the remedy? Well, is there some merit to biblically saturated Christian counseling? Yeah, there often can be. Is there some merit to medicinal intervention? Sometimes, maybe. But the best prescription is the one Jesus in his eternal wisdom offered. Consider your father. Consider your faith and purpose. And consider your future. And if you take a daily dose of meditating on these eternal truths, it might still be a daily struggle but it won't be a daily defeat. Well, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that Jesus, in his compassion, chose to teach on something that is such a vice and such a crippling part of the human condition. Let us trust him, listen to him, and go with him. For Christ's sake, would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word and for your kindness. Thank you that uh, you are familiar with our struggles and that you do not come with a heavy hand but simply with a compassionate invitation to think differently about the concerns of this life. Give us the faith and the boldness to obey. In Christ's name we pray, amen.